Hey there, I'm Emlyn Miles Mattingly, your host for the Minority Money Podcast. I'm glad you're here. You know why? Because this is the place you can come to get your weekly finance, family, and fitness motivation, not only to experience success in those areas for yourself, but also to help others in our community achieve greatness too. Super happy that you're on the show with me, so let's jump right in. Welcome to the Minority Money Podcast. I am your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, and today I am so excited to have my guest, Lindsay Callahan, on. Lindsay and I met a little while back, and as soon as I met her, I just thought she was an incredible woman. And the first thing I said is I grabbed her card and I said, you have to be on my podcast. I want to have you on. So Lindsay Callahan is the president and CEO of United Way in Madera and Fresno counties, couldn't say more about her. She's had so many accomplishments throughout her career. And I wanted to let her come on and say a few words and tell you about her journey. And without further ado, Lindsay, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Like I said, as soon as I met you, you know, you just meet someone and you just think, man, this is a powerful woman. We need to talk. And so after we met, I asked you, I think I was like the first time we actually talked. I was like, hey, I need to have you on the podcast. And she took the invitation graciously enough. And here we are now. So, Lindsay, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your background? I am a proud native of Fresno County. I wasn't born here, but I was definitely bred here. I was actually born in the Midwest. So I'm a California girl with some Midwest proclivities. I absolutely love the Central Valley. I love Fresno and Madera. I grew up here. My parents were in education. I was sent off to go to school in UC Davis and spent about 10 years in the Sacramento area. My experience is really kind of varied. I spent time at the state capitol doing advocacy and public policy. I spent time working for a large statewide nonprofit that represented private and family and corporate foundations. And then I decided that I wanted to come back here and come back to Fresno to do work for the kids who were in my own backyard and ended up having three of my own and been here ever since and took this job about three years ago. And it's been an amazing ride for me. And really, I have the best job ever. See, and that's that passion that I was talking about. Like, I can just tell that you loved what you do and you're passionate about it. And I think people follow that passion. As you had all these kind of career things led you to where you're at and you came back home. And today I wanted to talk to you about how important education, financial stability, and the health of families help the overall well-being. A lot of people don't know about the racial wealth gap that we have here in the United States. And for every $100 in a white family, a black family just has $5.04. Another one was from 1983 to about 2013, the median income for black households has declined 75% from $6,800 a month to about $1,700 a month. Our Latino Americans have declined about 50% from about 4,000 to 2,000. Meanwhile, fellow white Americans have had an increase in their household income of 14%. There's some disparity there in the amount of money that we make. There's tons of reasons why we can come up with those. But what I wanted to spend some time about today was just talking to you about some of the work that you do and how you've seen that in real life situations. It's one thing to give statistics, but once we can get into some real life situations that you have dealt with, I think it would be good to hear you talk about that. 
How does the purpose of money and education differ between communities? There's a lot of things going on here. And the work of our United Way here in Fresno and Madera counties is focused on this as much as we possibly can, because we see it as a community-wide issue, right? So this issue of not just the racial disparities in income, but also if you look at how hard people are working now and they're still struggling. And that's why we decided that we had to focus on helping working families thrive. And that the idea that we even have a concept called working poor, working poor, it actually contradicts itself. That's an indictment of every level of our society, from me to you to everyone. And we have to fix that. Our stats tell us that nine out of 10 of the families that are struggling are actually working. It's really a different narrative than what existed 30 or 40 years ago, even 20 years ago, where we all believed that people who were poor were just sitting around being poor and making money off the government by being poor. Whereas now people are actually working really hard for their money. It's just that being poor is such an expensive experience that being poor is taking up much more time and money than people have. And they have zero margin to even make enough money to keep food on the table. One of the things that we offer the community is our 211 helpline. It's a 24-7 confidential resource where if you run out of food or if you can't make rent or you can't pay your utilities, you don't have health care, you can just dial 211 or dial our 800 number, 866-559-4211. And 24-7, one of my call specialists will help you find a resource. I bring that up because one of the things that we see a lot through our 211 line is the month is just longer than the paycheck. And there's not enough food, or their PG&E bill is suddenly skyrocketing because it's so hot during the summer, or they're evicted from their house and they need some kind of shelter. What we found is that the relationship with money is very different for people who are struggling and don't have a margin, and particularly for people who are working still and still don't have a margin. And it's sort of the difference between something that's coming in and is mine versus something that's coming in and is going to go right back and I have no ownership over. People who are working and struggling don't usually have the time to have a lot of ownership over their money or have a lot of decisions on how they can spend their money. Their money is just getting spent on some basic needs and not a lot else. And that's all they can really think about. And that's what we're trying to fix here at United Way is to not just provide some basic needs, but actually drive additional income into families so that they can have margins and actually have the ability to make some decisions and have a relationship with their money instead of it just being this thing that goes right out the door and there's just never enough of it. So why would you really even care about it? It's just really different. I've heard it said before when there's too much month at the end of money and how incredibly difficult that is to feel like you're never getting ahead. And it sounds like you guys have resources to help people overcome this or get through this, right? That's right. And there's lots of community resources out there other than United Way. And that's part of our role is to try to help people get connected to the resources that are already there, because there's a lot of them. And just simple things like one of the things that we've done is that when people call 211 now, we try to save them some money. So 
There's low cost internet. You can get internet for $10 from Comcast and to AT&T. You can get subsidies on PG&E so that your PG&E bill is cheaper. There's lots of different programs out there that can help struggling families save money. And there's been times where people have called because they don't have food. And then we find a way to build $100 or $200 back into their budget by saving them money. Well, that gives them a little bit more margin to play with. And that's really important. Absolutely. How do you think that the things like worrying about where your next meal is, worrying about whether the lights are going to be on and not having internet access. How do you think that affects the educational aspect of these families in need? A lot of times people will refer to it as this sort of scarcity mindset. So there's just not enough, but it's also for those of us who know about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's very difficult to tend to those higher authority pieces when you don't have the basics covered. And that's exactly why we have free lunch at schools. This is exactly why we started doing free breakfast, because the education system realized very quickly that a hungry child cannot learn, right? So we made this huge investment in feeding kids. There's some schools that even feed kids to dinner, because what we realized very early on was that if a child was hungry, they didn't perform well on tests. And if they didn't perform well on tests, that reflected poorly on the school. So how do you educate someone who's hungry? And if you take that concept out sort of to your question, it then becomes, how do you educate a child who is within the context of just struggling and having all kinds of things that are going wrong every day? How do you expect parents to be highly engaged and making decisions when you don't even know if you're going to have a job tomorrow or you don't know if there's going to be food tomorrow? And for those of us who have never been in that situation where there was literally no food left in the house, just sit with it and imagine what that would be like if you came home to your house and there's no food. Like, what else can you deal with except the fact that you're hungry? Just hearing you say that and trying to put myself in that situation, like thinking about growing up, I was raised with my grandmother and my mom. We didn't have everything, but we always had food. Maybe not, you know, the quick snacks, but my grandmother always was able to make us something to eat. And so thinking about what it would be like to be a young person or an older person growing up in this environment where you don't know where your next meal is coming from. And it's something that we've heard people say before, but to really just let that sink in, like, how am I supposed to come in here and get focus on school, get good grades and not have something in my stomach? It's blowing my mind. I, I didn't realize that was going on here. Oh, absolutely. Hunger is a huge issue in this community. It's a huge issue. What do you think your largest impact has been since you started in your position? One of the big things that I've tried to do in the almost three and a half years that I've been here now is to really change this concept of the experience of receiving help. One of the differences between the way that we interact with money is also related to how we interact with time, right? So people who have means tend to spend their money on things that are going to get them more time, right? So more efficiency or delegating, things like that. Whereas a lot of times, the way that we treat people who are poor or in need is that we don't really value their time. And so we sort of give them this message that their time doesn't have any value. And that plays out in a couple of ways. And one of the ways that was playing out in my organization was that, for example, we would make people line up for hours for things like food distributions or backpack giveaways or 
to get their taxes done. We do taxes for free during tax season. It's one of my favorite programs. And so we would have people lined up for hours to get their taxes done because you're getting it done for free and there's no real value to your time. You're getting a free product and you should just take it however it's delivered. So giving people this valuable experience, I frame it as a middle-class experience because I don't really have any other words to put to it in that any of my middle-class friends could now walk into my building, have an appointment and get their taxes done for free if they qualified. Whereas before, I would never have referred any middle-class friend to come down and stand in line and get their taxes done because it was a whole different experience. And so really making sure that we show people that they have value and that their time has value and that this product that they're getting, that although it's for free, it's actually not a free product. It costs me half a million dollars a year to do free taxes, right? It's not a free product. You're just receiving it for free. And there's still a ton of value attached to it. So that's been a big thing that we've tried to really shift the culture of the organization because that message that we're giving to people is a really important message. And Emlyn, it was hilarious when I tried to take our lineup tax appointments to an appointment system where people had to make appointments because a lot of people, especially our providers, push back on it. We're like, people like lining up. <laughs> and it was like, and they were right. And it took about a year for the culture to shift, but now people love it. They can come in, they get it done quickly. They don't spend more than if they have really complicated tax return, they maybe spend 40, 45 minutes and we're valuing them and their time. And it's a really important message to send to the community. The thing that's amazing, like what you're saying is that the people just expected to wait. It's like, if you need help, then it's okay to wait because you need help. So you're just going to wait until you can get it. I think about how that's one element of, I would call that mindset of, if you're in a place where you need something, we've conditioned people to say, you're going to have to wait to get what you need because you can't afford it. Right. Exactly. That's so wrong on so many levels and just incredibly difficult. And then I think it really affects their overall mindset. It's just a tough thing to deal with and trying to change that. And so to see that you're saying that that's changed, that's awesome. Yeah, it was a huge shift for us. And I think that the other sort of just big overall thing that I've had to own as, I'll use it very generously, a young woman of color, the first African-American female to hold this position at United Way Fresno Madera Counties, you know, just understanding that holding this position is symbolic and there are it does say something. So I know that for young people, for women and young men who are coming up in their career, even people who are well-established in their career, I hear feedback that seeing you do this job, it's empowering, right? So people are drawing power from me being in this position. And I don't know that I fully understood that when I took the position on. I wasn't taking it on as some kind of like social statement or anything like that. I was taking it on because I really thought that this organization had something more to offer the community and that if anyone was going to drive impact, it was going to be United Way. And I wanted to be a part of that. But it definitely has become much more than that. I spent a lot of time with young kids, particularly students who are in middle school and high school. And I don't necessarily get to interact with all of them one-on-one, -on -one, but the ones that I do get to interact with, I'm definitely understanding that me standing up on the stage is something that they look to as, okay, 
I can do that because I've heard it in my career and I hear it all the time that you just simply cannot become what you cannot see. So if you don't see somebody who looks like you doing those things, how can you understand that you could be that? I understand that I am that symbol for many people and I try to do my best to sort of like uphold that, but to also be a real person too and to show that I am real and this hasn't been a simple journey but that it is possible and that it will be a struggle and it will always be a struggle, but it's definitely possible. And I tell them every single time I talk to students, so one of you one day will have my job. You can be president and CEO of United Way. I think that's such a powerful thing to bring up. I've also gone to schools and spoken to kids. And like when you said that, if they can't see it, then they can't believe it. And so when someone, person of color, whether they're children or adults, when they see your face, they're like, she did it. I can do it. And this is why, like when I think about when I go to schools or when I go somewhere and I'm going to be around young people that may not have, and not that I'm trying to be a role model or that you're trying to be a role model, but it's something that they can strive for. And when they see you, when they see people like myself and other professional people of color, I remember one time I was at this church and I was speaking to these kids and the pastor came up to me afterwards and said, hey, Emlyn, the way my young men look at you, they'll never look at me that way. I didn't understand it at the time. I didn't understand the gravity of what he was saying. Hearing you say this again, it's like I'm hearing it for the first time all over again. Like, wow, like it really does matter to see people of color in positions of power to encourage younger people of color and let them know that they can do that. Exactly. That's exactly right. That's that's incredibly impactful. If a family with a lower income wanted to change the financial trajectory of their family, where would you say they would start? Like, what would you say would be some a good place for them to start? The first part of this is really understanding income generation. It can happen in a number of ways. One of the ways that I think is really important for families to understand, particularly those that maybe are working in a lower skilled job, an entry level job, is that there are all kinds of hard skills that you can learn and make really good, decent money on. And you don't need to necessarily need a four-year degree. And so really identifying how you can build income and making that an objective of the entire family is really important. And there are lots of resources. I mean, the workforce development boards in all of the counties are tasked with this very thing. And there's all kinds of training out there that the state and the federal government are investing in where you can get training over the course of six, eight, nine, 12 months and increase your wages by fourfold. That's a really important place to start is just understanding that there's more for you than maybe the job that you're working at. We talk a lot about this progression from a jobby job to a career to your passion. And really starting on that path, the first thing is identifying where you can go to next and exploring some opportunities, whether it's healthcare or some kind of trade or manufacturing or whatever it may be, or a small business, whatever it is. Figure out a plan to drive some more income. You know, I think that the other thing that I would say is that particularly for minority families, as a single mom, I will say that the struggle of living on one income is particularly profound when you have more than one kid and you're trying to do all the things. And I get it. Like, I'm telling you, I get it. 
understanding how you can sort of be savvy about how you spend your money and how you spend your time is the other thing that I would say, especially to the single parents out there who are struggling to just get by because they don't have that flexibility of having a second income and what that could look like. You have to be even more nose to the grindstone with your money. It's got to work for you because it's yours. I talk a lot about budgeting and my clients just get tired of hearing it, but they know that it's true. And it's sometimes as you make more money, that's the thing. So if you've had someone coming in, you just don't have discretionary income. But as you build that discretionary income through getting some type of technical skills or whatever it is that you're going to have to increase your income, now we have to keep your nose to the grindstone, as you said, and monitoring what we're spending our money on. Because having a budget just allows you to tell your money where to go instead of wondering where it went. I know that a lot of times as a single father, when I was a single father, you have stuff come up and it's like, okay, if you don't plan for this, you know, if you don't plan to fail, you fail to plan, right? And not having a budget at times like that was very, very tough as a single parent, not having anyone else to fall back on. So I'm right with you on that. With that, I wanted to go into the next portion of the interview. And this is where we talk about changing the complexion of wealth. And the reason why we call it changing the complexion of wealth is because we're talking about people of color and how we can help them increase the amount of wealth that they have. And so I just want to kind of ask you some questions like what motivates you, inspires you to grow and learn and lead? How do you keep that inspiration and that motivation? I don't know that there's any one thing. I mean, I think that I would hearken back to my comment about that people are watching and that people see what I'm doing. When I was growing up in this community, there weren't a lot of ways to identify who was wealthy. But what I used to identify who was wealthy at that time was by what car they were driving. And what I would do is see what they had around their license plate, right? So what school they went to and whether or not it was a nice car. And then if they saw the person in the car was a person of color, it was like, oh, I'm going to <laughs> go to this school. I bring that up because it was important for me to see that there were successful people in our community who had maybe either gone to Fresno State and were doing great or gone away in most instances at that point and had come back and were driving around in this symbol of success. Now, we can get into all this kind of conversation about symbols of success and things like that, but it was just a way for me to like create a narrative in my mind about what could be. And so I understand that. And that's what keeps me going. And that's why when I turned, I think I was 24, maybe, and I spent a lot of time visiting school sites, I bought a Camaro and I put a UC Davis license plate frame on my Camaro so that the kids would see that this nice car is equated with this university, which is equated with this person of color. And you can have that, right? And so that's kind of what keeps me going is that I know that I came back here for the babies who were being born and I wanted to make a difference for them. And that's why I wake up at 438 every morning is because there are kids out there who need extra supports and need opportunities that I got growing up that they're not being afforded. And I use my brand power and my organizational brand power to make those opportunities happen as much as I possibly can. It's incredible to me how you keep going back to what you've seen as a child and what you've seen as, you know, the way that you 
associated someone's success. And especially when it came to a person of color, you know, you'd look at the car, you'd look at the license plate, see where they went to school. And all that was prior to seeing who drove the car. Let's see the car. After I see the car, now I see the license plate. Okay, so this person clearly went to school. Oh, wow. And they're a person of color. I can relate to that. And I think that we don't place enough value on other people of color seeing us in positions like yours and then using that to motivate, inspire and continue to drive you because there's that little girl that's looking at Lindsay drive by in her car or that little girl that's going to watch Lindsay come speak at the school or that little girl that's seen Lindsay on the news that says, oh, my God, that's Lindsay. She was at my school and now she's on the news. Those things are so inspirational. And you inspire me as well, Lindsay. So keep doing the great job. I have a few more questions for you. Do you think education plays a big part in wealth building? I think it's huge. And as the child of educators, and particularly my father, who was in higher education, it's an incredible equalizer, but it's also not for everyone. And I will say that the education that I got at the University of California, Davis, was incredible and high quality but it didn't hold a candle to the quarter that I spent working full-time in the state capitol. Education is an experience. Self-education is more important than what somebody spoon feeds you. You need to be responsible for what you learn, which is why internships and things like that have a lot of value. So education comes in a lot of different forms, and we all should be embracing it every single day and growing every single day. And when you say education, we're not only talking like formalized classroom setting, like we're talking sometimes it's going to be some work education. It's going to be some self-education. There's many more forms of education than just the academic learning setting of education. Did I hear that correctly? That's exactly right. Out in the world, there's all different kinds of ways that learning comes to you and you should always be embracing growth. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about was how your family supported you on this journey. And if you could talk a little bit about that, I think it's very important. We've been spending time talking about money, talking about family, talking about education. I want the listeners to have a little background into your family and how they've supported you on this journey that you've been on. My family is one of the reasons why I am back in Fresno. I could be living a lot of places, making probably a lot more money, living closer to the ocean. But my family is really the bedrock of my life. And my parents as educators, that was embedded in everything that I did. So there was never any question of whether or not I was going to get higher education or do well in school. It was just where I was going to go to get my higher education. But maybe more importantly, and this is really important, especially for families that are sort of navigating in to a higher class. One of the things that my parents taught us was that they exposed us to different cultures and ideas and experiences outside of what was our little house, whether it was Judaism or going to an East Indian wedding or celebrating with our Southeast Asian friends or doing a party with our Latino friends, there was never a culture or an experience that we weren't exposed to. And therefore, I am now as an adult able to navigate through multiple scenarios. And that piece that my parents built into raising us has been one of the most valuable pieces that I still hold today because I walk into a lot of very foreign rooms. And by foreign, I don't mean foreign. I mean that just people are different than I am or they're maybe have a different mindset than I do or they have a different upbringing, whether it's higher or lower. It doesn't really matter to me. 
I have the ability because of the way that I was raised to navigate up and down and across and to see different perspectives and to not be scared of difference. That's what I would really point to because I think it's something that parents can really easily do for their kids and many just don't because they're kind of scared themselves. I think that's important. I know when we talked, we were talking about that and we were talking about our upbringing and how diversity was a large part of our upbringing and how to have the ability to speak linear in a conversation, whether the person was highly educated, whether they had no education, whether they were young, whether they were older, and being able to do those things. And then not only that, but being able to relate to different races, ethnicities, religions, and that kind of stuff and how important that is. So that's awesome. I'm glad that you shared that today. The other last question that I wanted to say, and I always like to save this question for last because we know that this is a podcast about family, fitness, finance, and ultimately changing the complexion of wealth. And if you could offer one piece of advice to our listeners today, what would that one piece of advice be? Having money is a very important tool, but having money is not the ends. (laughs) It really just is a process to getting things that you need and want. And I talk with college students a lot about this, that it's easy for me to say money won't buy everything for you. What you really need to do is pursue what you're passionate about, because if you're not doing what you want to be doing eight to 12 hours out of the day, and you have all the money in the world, you will be absolutely miserable. So when we talk about financial stability in my organization, we're not just talking about getting people more money just to get people more money. We actually want people to be passionate and productive in society. And finding that peace that gets you going and gets you up at 438 in the morning, that's where you will really find the gold mine. And it won't matter if you're making $50,000 or $500,000, you'll find satisfaction and you will be gratified by that because passion will always trump how much money you have in your checking account. I could not agree more. That was such a great tip. Thank you for that. Where can our listeners find more of Lindsay? Where can they go to find more of what you're doing in the community, whether it's a social media or website or where where could they find you? Well, I would encourage them to follow United Way. Our handle for all of our social media platforms for United Way is UWFMC. So that's United Way, Fresno, Madera Counties, UWFMC. So you can find us all across the media platforms on that. You can find me on Facebook at L Callahan. If you want to follow me on Instagram and watch my stories, I'm Lindsay in the sky. I'm also on LinkedIn and I'm on Twitter as well as Lindsay Callahan. And I would love to connect with all of you. I'm very available. Send me a note, drop me a line. And I'm more than happy to take time and to talk with people and talk about my journey and talk about the resources that we have to offer. And I always have enough time for you. I promise. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lindsay, for coming on to the show. This is the Minority Money Podcast, where we are trying to change the complexion of wealth. Another great showdown, but it doesn't have to stop there. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast app you're listening on now and give it a good rating, would you? If you feel really connected to the podcast, which I hope you do, find our Facebook community, Minority Money VIP, to support and be supported by others just like you. And again, we're glad to have you. While this podcast is meant to inspire and motivate you to live your best life, it can't be your complete one-stop shop. 
I know, I know. That really sucks. But I don't know anything about your specific situation. So please reach out to an attorney or CPA, or you can reach out to me, a financial planner, to help you with your specific situation. To get a hold of us, please reach us at fan at Minority Money Podcast. That's F-A-N at Minority Money Podcast so we can get to know you there. Thanks for being here. And until next time.